Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 292 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Blooming with Lime, an interview with Georgia Wood. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. We knew Georgia was going to be a great interview, but we had no idea she was going to be this amazing. If you're struggling and think your Lyme experience is unique and that you're not going to be able to get over this horrible disease, then this is the podcast episode for you. Georgia goes into great detail relating to our personal experiences and then providing specific ways to overcome these hurdles. George is brutally honest and describes the pain that too many of us know with chronic Lyme disease. An important message she wants you to know is that you're not going to stop growing as a result of this experience. So hang on, keep fighting, and don't give up. So without further ado, we're really excited to introduce Georgia Wood. Hey, Georgia Wood, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Matt and Rich. I'm really appreciative to be on here and share my story. And we're really excited to have you on uh, our podcast. And we always like to interview our fellow podcasters. And we've been big fans of yours and your podcast for a long time. So you're really blessing us by taking time out of your really your very busy schedule and uh, sharing your story with our community. So thank you so much, Georgia, for taking the time out of your uh, of your schedule. Of course, anything to help the Lyme community. Well, thank you. So, Georgia, talk to us first about where you are right now. I detect an accent, uh, or maybe I have an accent, and because you speak English properly, I can I, I can detect a distinction between my diction and yours. Um, so I am currently in Woodstock, Vermont, in the USA. However, I was born and raised until around 13 in Down Under, so good old Australia. Um, I moved to America when I was about 13, 14 for a skiing career. And I've been here ever since. So I'm going on to my 11th year right now, which is pretty exciting. All right. Welcome to the immigrant community, Georgia Wood. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Georgia, talk to us about what it was like to grow up in Australia. Um, for me, it was really incredible. I just remember going to the beach every morning and not understanding how cool that was. I would just go to surf before school and then come back and we were always very athletic in our family. So I started skiing pretty young and a lot of people don't know that skiing is in Australia. However it is, I was doing bunches of sports and happened to be pretty naturally good at skiing by the age of 10, 11. And so we started actually traveling to Canada on and off um, to make it a little bit more serious. And so I had a big upbringing of Canada and Australia, lots of travel, a lot of independence, very, very young. I actually traveled to Canada by myself from Australia when I was 11 years old. At that point, we didn't have Wi-Fi everywhere and we didn't have iPhones. So I had a very cool pink flip phone that I had to switch the, U the US Aussie SIM cards, all of that. So I, I was very in, basically very independent at a young age, but absolutely had a good balance between Canada and Australia, beach and snow, but very athletic. So this this is something new for me because I did not know that you had snow in Australia. So uh, you developed yeah. your passion for skiing when you were living down under and to enhance that element of this, this uh, passion, you were, you were bouncing back and forth between Australia and Canada, which I guess Canada have the best snow and the best skiers. So you want to make sure that you could develop your skill set with the best and the brightest in the world. Exactly. And um, actually, just reminding me, classic wine brain, and we'll come in and out. Um, but I, I will say, coming back to Australia very briefly, I was born, obviously, in Australia. And when I was, I was born with actually a dysplastic kidney. 
So I came out with my immune system being very mucked up. I came in to the world and was automatically in surgery, automatically on antibiotics. And for the first three years of my life on antibiotics. So my immune system never really had a chance to get set up. On top of that, the doctor said there were, the surgeon said there were two sports I would never be able to do in my life. And that would be skiing and skydiving. And I can say now that I successfully got onto the national team for skiing and I have gone skydiving. Oh, so right. it shows well, that I'm very much one to push my boundaries <laughs> from quite a young age. <laughs> well, we uh, we can tell already in this uh, this short time we've been together that you're not the kind of gal that somebody should tell you you cannot do something. Exactly. <laughs> so Georgia, um, talk to us about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases when you were a young person in Australia. Uh, we've heard Absolutely some- nothing. <laughs> yeah, we've heard from some of our Australian guests that um, that the official position of the Australian government is there is no Lyme disease in Australia. And it is still that way today. There is absolutely no Lyme disease acknowledgement in Australia whatsoever. Um, it is quite, it, I mean, it angers me deeply. I... I had no education on it whatsoever. I got to, I moved from Sydney, Australia, from living on the beach to Woodstock, Vermont. So it was a very big reality change. I had never heard about ticks. So I was outside in the grass in the woods, no long socks, no awareness, no nothing. And I know, I honestly didn't know until I was probably about 17, 18. Okay. So when you say you didn't know, you didn't know anything about ticks until you were 17 or 18 years old living in the U.S. And if that's when yep. you learned about ticks, um, how did you learn about ticks? Um, I remember one of, I think when I was, I guess I'd probably be around 16. I went to Martha's Vineyard and my like high school boyfriend at the time had a tick, but we just took it off. And that was that. There was no, this could be a lifelong thing that there was. It was, oh, you got a tick, let's take it off and hope for the best. And that was just, it was kind of like in Australia, getting a mosquito bite or a spider bite or any sort of bug bite in Australia. Oh, we got it, whatever, move on. So your awareness came at a time where you did not think it was something that would be a threat and it wasn't something you should be protecting yourself against. It was just sort of one of these sort of nuisance um, bug bites that um, that you could easily deal with. And although it may be gross because it's sucking your blood, not a big deal. Yeah. And especially me as an Australian, I really was like, oh, that's nothing. That's tiny. Like, ah, I really didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. So, Georgia, you you said that you were a gifted elite athlete. What was your vision for your future while you were pursuing this sort of uh, international um, um, pursuit of, of skiing? Um, so I definitely, I've always been a very driven human and I, especially, I think with my illnesses throughout my entire life, I have been in and out of hospitals. Um, and I always sort of pushed through and with skiing, I somehow had a natural ability with it, with it. And throughout my, most of my skiing career, I, I still had kidney issues. Even when I moved to the U S I remember, I actually had a kidney reconstruction when I was 14 years old and three weeks later I was on snow doing backflips. So with my like elite skiing, it was absolutely incredible. The mental drive, mind over matter, let's go, let's go. But it definitely did confuse me as a young human of when to say my boundary, like, no, I need to rest. 
no, I actually am feeling at a point of not being okay. So I really lost my sense of this is a real pain I'm feeling um, because I pretty much had a kidney reconstruction, went skiing when three weeks later. And that was a very, I would go to the hospital one night in the middle of the night and then compete the next day. Luckily come first, but still I look back and I'm like, that was, I never really learned from a very young age when to be like, hang on, no, I need to rest. I need to recharge. I, I didn't have a voice. I just had a big drive and I wanted to impress the people supporting me, I guess. So Georgia, talk to us about that drive. You know, one of the things we've discussed in this podcast in the, in the past is that suck it up culture where some people from some cultures have parents who are essentially always telling them to suck it up and fight through it and essentially ignore um, you know, the voices that your body sends to your conscious and subconscious uh, brain. So talk to us about uh, talk to us about where your drive came from. Was it because you were from a culture, the suck it up culture? Was it because you you had um, you had this uh, this childhood illness and because you had this childhood illness and you were told that there were some things you couldn't do that you were just not going to be told? No, where did this come from? And we're going to talk about how it presented in a minute. Yeah, um, I think it was a, a range of both of what you sort of just stated. It definitely was that you can't do it um, or just me always somewhat being sick. I was like, no, I can do everything everyone else can do. Um, but I will say just a disclaimer, because obviously, as everyone knows, with Lyme disease and co-infections, it's tough with sometimes family and close people. So I just want to disclaim, I absolutely love my parents now. We're on very good terms. Big disclaimer. However. It got very messy. And yes, they were the somewhat suck it up sort of parents. I also believe I heavily went along with the suck it up with my side of I'm not giving up. So it was a bunch, it was a mix of both. But I definitely, I feel very passionately about anything against the suck it up culture because I'm a very, I now know I'm very much an empath. I'm extremely in tune with my body. I do give Lyme a lot of grace for that. Um, but there were many times that I knew I shouldn't be doing what I was doing and no adult around me listened to me. And I, I, I did have threats of if I didn't get in the top three, I wouldn't really have loved to come back to. And that being said, there was life going on with what was happening, but it very much made me feel if I do not, succeed at what I'm doing I will have no one and I have nothing um and I think that was made pretty clear to me by pretty much every adult around me all right so let's talk a long time let's talk about elite athleticism right because one of the one of the patterns we've also we've also seen with elite athletes that we've interviewed on this podcast is that there is a mindset issue that is sort of built into young elite athletes that they may or may not be um, um, aware of mm-hmm. that, uh, that requires them to essentially earn the love of the people who are essentially supporting them on their quest to become elite athletes. Is that what happened with you, that you were essentially given the edict that if you didn't work hard and you didn't have success, that you weren't worthy of love? Yes, very much so. And um, interrupt me if I'm going to, but I very much, it actually has taken and still is a 
choice to choice moment today um, of reminding myself, no, that is my child trauma. And that is not true. That is a lie created. But I am worthy of this help. I am worthy of this support if I'm doing even nothing. If I'm literally just resting, it is still a reminder to this day. And it was actually a really big issue when I started feeling a bit of my symptoms come in. Um, it was quite hard. I just, I pushed through for so long and I couldn't because if I gave into what I was feeling internally, I would have literally no one, no nothing. I'd never been allowed to work. I'd never been allowed to have any savings. And every, every egg was in that basket. So it, it, it very much was suffocating. And yeah, it, I had to, I felt that I had to pretty much win to have any sort of love support from any aspect of human. All right, so let's talk about your role in this, right? Because yeah. you were you were setting goals for yourself. You 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 knew from a very early age that you were a gifted athlete. You knew from a yeah. very early age that you wanted to pursue an athletic career. Um, what role did you play in this in setting goals for yourself and dreaming about a future as a professional athlete? Um, I believe that my goals are really. And it does come back. I, I definitely had my own personal goals. I, well, okay. Speaking from me as like a 14 year old, 15 year old, like when I was on the national team, it was to represent my country, but also sadly it was to prove to everyone around me. It was, it was a lot to do with proof. And I'm just going to be so honest. It was to prove to people around me that look, apparently this is the path I've been put on. I'm so naturally good at it. And there are a lot of people who had the mental drive the the love and I had the natural talent so for me uh, sadly a lot of it was to prove to people I'm not going to waste this natural talent I got told as a kid I wasn't allowed to do any of this it has been impressing everyone especially leaving Australia to come to America I wanted to social media was just coming up I want to I wanted to prove to people that hey look at me I can do it and I think um I do look back now and I, I do actually coach kids for skiing now and I make sure very early on, are you doing this for you or are you doing this for anyone else? Who are you doing this for? Because sadly, my history was I was not doing it for myself. I was just luckily very talented and had a good work drive and had a high pain tolerance. So it seemed to line up, but... It, it was not for myself, sadly. So before we move on from this point, can you share with us the successes that you had? Meaning we know you yes. were very, very successful and you were actually a captain of the team. So talk to us about all the successes that you've had while you were going through this process. Um, so for me, I, I have quite severe dyslexia and quite severe ADHD. And my mom was very smart to see early on that in the Australian school system, I'd be broken down. She saw my athleticism and she knew that there I'd have confidence no matter what. So for me, what I feel so achieved in is being with a team, learning how to travel at a young age, be with so many different humans that you have one thing that you're really passionate about, but a lot that you don't have in common. Um, I really, the mind over matter, it's a give and take, but I learned how to push it to the extreme and then learn how to dial it back. I, I really give so much grace to learning how to compete, but mainly how to lose. Because in life, sadly, it's a lot of losses and a couple wins. So my biggest grace that I learned was 
how to lose and keep going and really push through that. And instead of losing and going down, losing and setting two goals ahead and just understanding that losses in life will happen. That is the biggest thing I take away from being an elite athlete and being a representative for Australia and being, yeah, looked up to, I guess. Talk to us about some of the competitions that you competed in on behalf of your country. Um, so the biggest one I ended up doing that I'm most proud of is my uh, the U.S. Nationals or um, honestly NORAMs, which is a step below World Cup. But my biggest goal was getting onto the Australian team. And I absolutely, I was just so proud to have moved from Australia, but still be representing Australia. And that me not being in Australia, they still were proud to have me represent them. That was really major. It's a feeling of community. That was so major to me in the competition was the feeling of community. And then even all the countries coming together, the community and understanding we are all fighting for this. And yes, we're competing against each other, but we all have that same goal and we're all going through the same training process and we will fight and we will do it as much as we can. I think that is definitely the biggest competition takeout. Um, also apologies. I do somewhat have COVID line brain right now. So I do see myself trailing, but I think we will get it. <laughs> you're not trailing at all. I, I think you're, you're very much on point and it's Sweet. my job to make sure that you stay with us and you're doing a great job. So don't Amazing. Worry, That's worry a classic about... little Lyme anxiety there, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it so uh, I can't help you with the anxiety, but I can I can I can assure you yeah. you are very much on point. Sweet, so sweet. let's let's talk about when your symptoms first developed. We now know you have Lyme disease. I mean, you wouldn't be on yep. this podcast if you didn't. That's a yep. prerequisite for joining us. Uh, but yep. before we get to your diagnosis, I want you to talk to us about uh, when you first started to feel symptomatic. Yes, um, and I think this at. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned I had a lot of kidney issues and I had a reconstruction when I was 14 years old. I also moved to America when I was around 13, 14 years old. With kidney issues, you do get quite a lot of rashes. Um, and with the, with the antibiotics I was taking, I was just getting random rashes. So I, now knowing later, but basically I can now look back and know that I did probably have a rash. I never knew about ticks, as I said earlier. I did not see that as a rash from a bullseye, et cetera. Um, my first symptoms, very much like similar to Matt, were ne neurological. Um, I think the physical ones I probably couldn't pick up on because I was so good at mm, kind of putting them to the side. Um, and I knew how to do ice baths and all of that to kind of at least, I thought it was all to do with my fitness. Okay, um, so, so let's, pause there. One, Richard, let's pause there for a second. So because yeah. one of the things we've learned from some of our guests in the past who have been a part of the suck-up culture is that because they're, especially elite athletes, because they're yeah. constantly working through pain and ignoring pain, they've actually yeah. lost touch with their ability to feel pain to feel yep. their emotions, to understand what emotions are. And as a result of that, when they're getting signals from their body or when the average person would be getting signals from their body, you don't even get them. So talk yep. to us about that. Do you think perhaps you were symptomatic and you you just ah. literally lost lost the ability to feel the signals from your body until they became, until you suffered the neurological impairment? Absolutely. I, I truly believe that at around 15, 14, I started getting the physical symptoms 
And we just, because I had my kidney passed, we blamed it all on that. But I was in and out of hospitals and I would kind of leave with, and I was always sick or always hurt. And then I'd push through them and it was more than others, but I would push through harder. Now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was obviously lying. But um, yeah, no, I was completely out of touch. And it even, and I know we'll get to it, but even after the di- diagnosis, I still, I, I, even to this day, there are times that I do not believe what I'm feeling in my body. And I, I do not even, I still question, did I actually have Lyme disease? Which is so bizarre because I, I, I have the proof. I know I did. But there is still that because of the suck up culture, there is still that block in my mind sometimes of like, is this real? Is this not? Am I just being a wuss, basically? Um, and so it, it, it was, I definitely was looking back now. It was so obvious, so obvious. But I absolutely just until the neurological ones, until I literally wasn't a human, it. I just ignored it and didn't, I just thought it was athletic issues. <laughs> so you started feeling symptoms somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when did you finally get diagnosed with Lyme disease? Um, I finally got somewhat diagnosed with Lyme disease when I was around, um, probably around 17, 18. So around, it it was in end of, I believe, 2015 or 16. Um, A little background for that, because it it is a key part of the story for me, is I basically started feeling really severe symptoms in my senior year of high school. So spring of 2015, I finally went off my antibiotics for my kidneys. And that had, without us knowing, that had kept the swelling, I guess, in my brain down. So that's why the neurological symptoms hadn't come out as much. So I went off these antibiotics and it was meant to be the most exciting moment because, oh my goodness, I'm off my antibiotics. My kidneys are better. Finally, I've been sick my whole life. Goodness gracious, I'm there. I'm also about to graduate. I'm on the Australian ski team. I have a scholarship to Denver Business School. Everything was like, top top going for me and then I just remember this spring of high school and the OCD the um I stumble on the paralyzed paralyzation paralysis paralysis thank you there you go thank you sorry (laughs) um okay like I started realizing all these things and saying to people I need help I need help and I looked very healthy though and I was very very good at making myself look extremely healthy um, I graduated, went to Australia, training on the Australian ski team. And it was just this massive change. These coaches that have worked with me for years, I was standing on snow and just crying. And I was never a crier. It would just, I, it, there were these triggers and I'd been doing backflips pretty much my entire life, never really crashing them. And suddenly I'd go off the jump, blackout, drop to my face. And I remember finally after me, and I also as I said earlier, I'd been traveling since 11 years old, but we barely had phones. I started calling my parents in America 24-7, and I'm 17 at this point, and I'd never done that. And I was like, I need help. This is not me. I need help. I do not feel that I am myself. I need help. I feel out of body. And then finally, there was this one big crash, and I think my coach, I don't remember too much of this, 
But my coach just called my parents in the US and was like, this is not the Georgia we've trained. This is not the human we know. And she needs serious help. We don't know what's happening, but it's not Georgia. But, and my parents, I will say, did not listen to that. It was not until a week later that I finally got a physical symptom, a seeing symptom in my neck, in my throat, I got these big ulcers. And that's finally, and it was like mono strep. That's finally when any adult, apart from my coach that called, was like, oh, she may need some medical help. That's when everything started happening. And my parents did see me and they were like, okay, this isn't Georgia because I was having these extreme like burst outs and blackouts and then not remembering anything, getting numb, getting seizures. I, I just was not myself, like looking into not there. And I was extremely depressed, very suicidal at the time. And everyone around me just kept saying, you have everything right now. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this for attention? And I was sitting there like, you don't think there's another way I could get attention? Like, this is not the way I would choose. I remember feeling crazy because I would sit there being like, guys, I'm not myself. My arms are shaking. And they kind of, I felt, I can't say what people thought, but I felt as though I was sitting there and doing this, like shaking my hands on purpose. But then I would sit there and look at my hands shaking and be like, stop. And it wouldn't stop. And I'd be like, am I, I would still think I was like tricking myself or, and that's the suck it up culture. I don't, I don't even know. But I just remember sitting there and like testing myself and being like, are you putting this on? Are you trying to get attention? Um, and so fast forward, we get back to America. Luckily, um, we did have a doctor in Connecticut. Um, and my mom is somewhat in the holistic world. So she did a massive panel of blood tests and I got mainly diagnosed with pandas. Um, maybe put that in the description because I can't do that, <laughs> what it actually means. But basically it was swelling in my brain and the outbursts and anorexia and et cetera. And then a side thing on that report for pandas was Lyme disease. So that's technically when I got diagnosed and that was um I believe November 2015 maybe 16 no 2015 without a doubt and I remember we got pandas and we ran with pandas and there was that side thing of Lyme but we still we had no clue what Lyme was we'd never heard of it so we didn't pay attention to it it was like oh okay whatever that's just happens to be there as well um and a little bit more on from that I then remember um my just I couldn't my eating, because also I just lost my entire ski career at this point. I was meant to be training for the Olympics and me leaving was pretty much career down the toilet. Um, and that was a lot for my parents to handle because they'd put a lot into it. So there was also a lot of toxic energy happening um, around let's, that. George, yeah. let's pause there for a second, right? Because you did share with us Perfect. that your career as a professional skier was really more your parents dream than it was yours yeah so when this happened did you feel on some level a little relief um i was ex honestly i was extremely relieved um as sad as that is now looking back i think my gut knew for a long time how sick i was and that's why i felt i didn't want to ski um but I remember sitting on chairlifts at like my last season and thinking, I wish I'd tear my ACL this run 
so then the adults don't have an excuse but to let me rest. Okay, let's let's uh, pause that for another second yeah. because Matt Matt's going to take you through your diagnosis and your and your Perfect. treatment. I want you, I want you to look back with me for a minute because you're you're mm-hmm. developing a really important point here and I, and, and yes. I don't want to lose this. Um, I'm assuming you were symptomatic long before the crash. Yes. And you, at the same time, because you were dealing with other health issues, you were constantly in touch with medical professionals. Yes. Now that, now that you know what you know about Lyme disease, um, and now reflecting on how the symptoms were developing, were you sharing those symptoms with your healthcare professionals? And do you believe that a competent healthcare professional would have been able to diagnose you with Lyme disease before the crash? I believe if I... With where it is today, I believe if I went in with the symptoms I was going in at 15 years old, they would have diagnosed me with Lyme disease pretty quickly. It was very clear. I, I have, I still have all my diaries from that time and I can look at my notes and be like tiredness, aches, like I, it, just the classic ones. And I remember writing like, I feel like my other teammates aren't having these and I'm doing everything more than that. Like I'm doing my recovery longer or I'm eating healthier and they're still not having the same things I'm having. And I remember being very annoyed by it. So I do believe, yes, I believe a very competent line doctor at this point would have easily seen it. I think it, I believe it was quite obvious. Now, looking back, knowing what I know. Now, do you believe that <laughs> perhaps you may have been as a patient a little less aggressive in emphasizing these symptoms when you were meeting with your doctors because you were a part of the suck it up culture and because you were essentially developing your self-worth through the successes you were having as um as a representative of your country 100 percent. i remember every and i still have to choose not to do this but i remember going to the hospital and always saying there was a note on my hospital thing she's going to rate her level of pain a lot lower than what it actually is because for me, saying anything above five was like, you're such a baby. So I could be feeling a straight 10, maybe 11, and I would say a four or a three. And me saying a six was major. Like if my parents ever heard a six or my coach heard a six, they were like, oh my gosh, doctors, please listen to this because she doesn't do that. So, so absolutely, I definitely didn't, I definitely like lowered my actual pain. And you're, you're, History so far with Rich is so typical in the Lyme journey. And I don't mean to stereotype you at all, but it's just unfortunate that so many people go through this, this journey and down this path, and then it'll, it ends up being Lyme disease. The other kids weren't getting sick like I was from the foods. I was sleeping good and they weren't, and I wasn't healthy. I was having these emotional problems, these physical problems, and, and nobody could figure out why. Everybody was doubting if it was real. Was it all in my head? My labs are coming up normal, but I was still so sick, right? That's like all these things are classic yep. Lyme disease, you know, scenarios. And I think people need to think more about Lyme disease when you're in your situation, right? So thank you for sharing that with everybody because that lays oh, the, the context to your diagnosis now. And now, I mean, you're 18 years old, right? Your skiing career is now gone. You are getting diagnosed with, and I think it's ridiculous, not that pandas is not a, it's not but, a, an yes. important factor, but to put Lyme off to the side would bother me about what you said to Rich. It was like, you have pandas, you have brain inflammation, which is causing some of your emotional issues. However, you have Lyme disease, which is causing a ton of other symptoms, but we're not going to talk about that now. And I don't mm-hmm. like how that was almost like an appetizer off to the side from your diagnosis standpoint, right? So 
as soon as you got that diagnosis of pandas with Lyme off to the side, what were you doing to treat with your doctor? I think it was in Connecticut, you said, Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I got the pand, we went on to a bunch of holistic supplements, but a big issue at the time, I will say my parents were getting divorced. So it was very, there was a whole lot of toxic stuff happening at the time as well. So I don't have too much memory of this, but I do remember, I think the first steps were because of the pandas diagnosis, they said that I had triggers. And it seemed to me at the time that my mother and my sister were a trigger. So straight away, it split up our family. My dad, who's a very easygoing dude, I seemed to be able to be with him because he wouldn't trigger me. He wouldn't start anything. So we came to Vermont. My mom and sister stayed in New York City. And I just remember, I just we just hid. We literally tried to start some antibiotics, but my... OCD slash anorexia and just my everything was so off I couldn't eat enough to get the tablets in and if I got the tablets in I would feel really bloated and I'd throw it up and it was just a cycle of mess then I'd have these massive blackout attacks like anger now we know it was Barbesia or Bartonella correct me whichever one it is that has the anger but these extreme outbursts and I am five three if that and my dad is six three I also had just come off being a top athlete I I pretty much beat him up in these attacks trying to beat up myself but him because I felt like I I felt a devil literally a devil inside and I kept trying to rip it out of me and like hit it out of me and it just felt so out of body and my poor father would like try weigh me down and I just happened to be very strong and then I'd come out of it and have no recollection and he would be pretty traumatized. I'd be traumatized, be like, what the heck just happened? And then um, I did start using marijuana quite a bit at this point because it was able to help me eat. It was able to help me sleep. And my parents didn't really understand that. So they were getting annoyed that I was kind of being sneaky with that. But I was seeing that and I was like, but it helps me eat and I cannot eat otherwise. So I don't well get why this is bad. Georgia, I just I just want to interrupt you because yes, Rich and I are chatting offline right now, and and anybody I know people the people listening to this can't see me, but I'm I was smiling as you were describing your Lyme rage, and I apologize if that was that was yeah, probably inappropriate. No, I, but the reason I was smiling, Georgia, is because you described it so brilliantly, and as somebody who's gone through the journey, I couldn't have said it any better than you did. So thank you for first of all sharing that and explaining it so well because I felt validated in my own experience. And I know our listeners are going to feel validated as well because you cannot describe that Lyme rage. And I, I certainly have never been able to put the words the way you did. So thank you for that, first of all. That was really um, well said. Of course. And I will come in there and say there is one poem and it's very much on the Lyme rage because I could never, I was like, you guys know me as a human. How do you think this is me doing? Like me choosing to do this. Like, don't you know me as a human deep down? Like, can't you look at me and not see me? Like, this is not me doing that. And that was so hard, especially at that age. I didn't know my values. I didn't know who I was. And so I thought that was me as a human. I thought I just thought I was a horrible human. I was like, damn, I'm, I, if I wasn't this privileged, if I didn't look like this, I, I would be in jail or I'd be dead pretty much. And I kept saying that to my family and the people around me. I was like, guys, do you not like, this is not me. But I will say, and if it's okay, I, I wrote a poem when I was, and it kind of links into the time of the story that we're in, um, was after these massive Lyme attacks, um, it got to the point that 
my sister, it was a post Christmas. We couldn't do Christmas as a family because holidays were too much for me, too much food, too, too much to think about. I couldn't do it. I hid. Um, they came around New Year's Eve and New Year's Eve, I remember checking in to an eating disorder ward because at this point I just needed to be inpatient because my I it was like scary. George, I'm going to you again. I apologize. I just want to ask a question because, mm-hmm. you know, once again, I see this, we're seeing the story build up and OCD, anorexia, your blackout symptoms, your rage, your physical symptoms, all of these things are indicative of a tick-borne illness, Lyme disease, co-infections, right? And we know that pandas is extremely common in children with tick-borne illness diagnoses, right? So here we are, you have a pandas diagnosis, which generally comes hand in hand, not all the time, but oftentimes with a tick-borne illness. In children, you are a child, but nobody's saying, let's think about Lyme disease. Now, the anorexia. One of our first podcast guests told us that she believed there was a connection between Lyme disease and anorexia. And that that thought has been built out over the last 300 interviews that we've done by many other people who have believed the same thing. And a lot of research today is pointing to a connection between Lyme and anorexia as well. So with all of these connections that we're making here in this podcast, none of your Mm -hmm. doctors, nobody around you, nobody in your family thought we should bring Lyme up to the forefront and look at it. Or no, she's got this pandas and we can't treat her because she's too, she's too anxious. And we're just going to go put her into an anorexia clinic. That was the thought process at the time. Yep. Okay. So that just, that makes my blood boil. And I'm just sorry that you had yep. to go through all that. And hopefully this and podcast and all the awareness we're doing will change that, Georgia. I so really appreciate, sorry for interrupting. No, please. Um, so I remember sitting in that um, eating disorder ward and this is written on the 13th of July. And so I've been in there for nearly two weeks at this point. I checked in on New Year's Eve. And I just remember sitting there trying to get to my parents and my friends and anyone like, guys, I'm not. I also remember trying to say to my, it was before, it was when I got the pandas. I called my high school friends. I was like, guys, I got a diagnosis. The reason I've been so weird, so wild is I have pandas. And they were like, so what what are you going to do? What's the thing? And I was like, well, we don't know yet. They were like, well, can you just, not tell us then and not really contact us until you figure it all out i remember i cannot i feel that that comment sank so deep into me because i was so stoked to get any sort of clarification why i was feeling how i felt um and so i wrote this poem and it's a little long but it is a poem that i know anyone worldwide will connect to and i am going to read it um please it is called the devil inside of me Um, I'm bad at reading, so I'm going to use my finger. (laughs) Um, There is a devil inside of me. I am his disguise. He is taking over, crept his way inside, picking and pulling, punching and pounding, constant chatter, no good for the ears, only leaving me mad and in fear. I've lost my way being locked away. The devil holds the key, not not quite sure I'll be able to break it free. Close my eyes, I see the devil, keep them open, and I'm left vulnerable. But worst of all, everyone everyone else will see what's really happening inside of me. Lack of control, now my current theme. He's come in and ruined every one of my scenes. Barely breathing, continuous aching. Stab me, slash me, now he's screaming. There's a devil inside of me, I am his disguise. Locked in a jail, visible only to me. Sick and tired, no way to break free. Stripping me of my dignity repetitively. Trying to drown him in both pills and potions, but the funny thing is he's just learning to swim. 
So why even bother when the devil is just growing stronger? Barely breathing, lack of control. He strikes again and oh so bold. I'm trying to speak up, but in he cuts. Let me speak up. Let me reach recovery. There is a devil inside of me. I am his disguise. Someone please help me. Someone please save me. Because these pills and potions aren't doing a thing. Barely breathing. Where will he strike next? First, my family, friends, you'll be up next. And slowly but surely, he'll bring them to an end. Heart racing, head pounding. He's constantly screaming. Slap me, stab me, and finally shoot me. There is a devil inside of me. I am his disguise. No more is he just that little side bloke. He's taken over, sucking at all of my hope. Pills and potions, just keeping him entertained, but sober him up and he's right back for more games. I'm trying to push through, but I'm not sure if I can cope. He's growing and expanding and he's made me his permanent home. Where have I gone and where is this mysterious key? He's locked me away for no one else to see. There is a devil inside of me, though no more am I his disguise. He's become me and I've been locked deep, deep inside. I'm not fighting myself. I'm fighting a fight against the evil devil that has taken over my inside. Georgia, I have to tell you, I, you, you gave me the chills. You gave me yeah. the chills at that. And I'd like to, if you're comfortable, post that as a link in obviously Absolutely. credit you and possibly as a guest blog post on our website to link to you yeah. on the show notes of this podcast and also share, you know, in your words and credit you, of course, with our, our social media, because that is something that I would never be able to put into words that you described. And once again, that validated my experience. I think will, will, will be so powerful for somebody listening to this podcast. I can relate to that because you truly can't comprehend what it's like to go through this journey until you're there. Right. And I think that poem describes that better than any words I could ever use. So again, thank you for that. And if you're willing, we'd love to put, you know, in some way, a link to that in the show notes. Of course. And I will say with that poem, which is pretty, what's ironic about it, was that's when I still didn't really think about lying. And so I remember writing that poem, sending it out, and I didn't think about it for a good three, four years. And then finally, when I got to a point, I was like, wait a minute. It came up in like one of my memories and I was like, oh, I wrote that? It was so shocking to me because I remember I, I, I was so out of it, but I, I read it, I'm like, wow, I knew, I did know what was happening before I actually knew it was happening. And that poem to me, I read it, it doesn't even, I don't remember right, I do somewhat, but it was like, it, it is, I want to share that poem a lot because I read it back and I was like, wow, that made a lot of sense. <laughs> so Georgia, walk us through, because we have heard in young children that the aggression and the rage is really powerful. So we've had some oh. people tell us that their their children literally, you know, I don't know how to describe this, will beat the crap out of their parents and they have to have their children move out with one of the spouses because the, and one, one of the, the dad will have to live with the child and try to help them while they're in this, this Lyme rage, which, you know, is sort of connected to the pandas. How severe was this rage and how severe was the physical, uh, you know, I'll call it, a, I don't want to say abuse, but how, how, how severe was oh, this was between you and your parents? And, and it sounds like you were, you were getting into physical altercations with your dad and he was trying to um, control you. So- I will say to make clear for me personally, it was against myself. It was against that devil inside of me. Um, it was not. And then my dad would see me beating up. I would be, I basically hit my head severely into glass walls, windows. There was multiple my shaped heads in the walls. 
Um, there's kicked holes in the walls. It was never attacking anyone else. It was attacking inside of me. And then the loved ones around me would be like, what the heck are you doing trying to calm me? And whatever it was, was like, get the heck away from me. And I kind of knew as well how strong I was at the time. So that scared me even more. So I'd go harder at myself. But basically, for me, looking back, I believe I really didn't know who I, I just, it was terrifying because I, it wasn't myself and I was so young that I didn't know it wasn't myself. So I thought I was a very scary human. Um, and that made me even madder, I guess, <laughs> which didn't help. And it was this sort of loop. Um, and then I'd come out of it and be so ashamed and not really remember anything and be beaten up, like blood everywhere, holes in the wall, broken chairs, and my parents looking at me like, who is this? And I didn't know what had just happened. So I don't, I can't, it's, it's really tough to put into words, but I can, like my, when I talk about it, my body kind of cringes up and like, I can feel it because it was this anger of like, I feel like my learning, it was just all taken away is what I guess now, I don't even, that's what I'm still, I'm still trying to well, process but it. George, was this all chalked up to the, to the pandas? Because pandas causes these neuropsychological problems. Like what was your family and doctor saying was the root cause of your sudden changed behavior of being so violent against yourself? Was it just saying, oh, it must be the pandas? Um, I, that's pretty much what it is. And there was just a lot of other stuff going on. So there was a lot of time I was sort of left. I, I started living by myself when I was 15, to clarify. So there was a lot of time I was just left by myself um, and kind of dealt with it by myself. So, yeah, it kind of kept getting chalked up to pandas, I guess. And then I myself started to try and do some more research into it. And then the doctor who originally diagnosed me with pandas her son had Lyme at the time when she diagnosed me with pandas. And so I don't think she was giving full awareness to what, basically she came back a couple months later. I guess my father tried to call her being like, this is more, we're not getting the help we need. What the heck is happening? It's getting worse. The pills, it just doesn't, it's not working. And I think she said, oh, my son, I've just realized he is Lyme. And then from there, Lyme came more into it um and I it's still like I it didn't I think I, I I have a very blurry memory of all of this but I I remember looking at the papers and seeing Lyme and just looking up every co-infection or co-whatever they'd written down and I remember reading about Lyme somewhat and being like hang on this kind of makes sense to what's happening here for me, it was more the Barbicio Bartonella with the anger because that's what scared me the most. Um, that's when I was like, there's something more here. And then, oh, yeah, and then, yeah, then we reached out to the um, doctor and she confirmed Lyme is actually pretty bad. And then that's when we were living in New York City and I sat down and I found a very holistic place. And no, cut that out. <laughs> that's not what happened. Skipped a whole year. Are you good? <laughs> um, basically, I 
I then I remember she recommended us to a doctor and then I started the two and a, the two years of modern medicine to then cure Lyme and inflammation. That's what it was. We met an inflammation doctor. I just met with so many doctors. And <laughs> it's impossible to remember things in chronological order, Georgia. So you are not exactly. alone. You're nobody uh, remembers things perfectly in time order. So don't be hard yeah. on yourself for this. But just, so just to clarify, when your when your doctor finally said, "Hey, I yeah, I think Lyme could be a big picture," she referred you out to another doctor who yes, for two years you treated with for inflammation in Lyme. Yes. Okay. Now, were you doing things that were kill protocols with herbs, antibiotics? What were you doing to address Lyme and in parallel address the inflammation? So my mom, um, already we just went gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, because my mom just knew that from younger ages because of ADHD. Um, So we, luckily I had that from mom. So I instantly went to that. And then we, I was doing a lot of herbs and a lot of holistic atmos things that didn't help. So then that's when we found um, a doctor who technically couldn't legally treat Lyme. So, and he said, we're going to give you the, he acknowledged I had Lyme and he wanted to help me, but he could not legally treat it, I guess. So then I spent four and a half months of getting all these tests to prove I had another illness to then go and get my IVIG um, shot. I believe you guys may have heard of that. This is for IVIG, correct? Yeah. Yes. That's actually, um, most people we know who get IVIG. IVIG treatment for Lyme disease have to get a unofficial diagnosis of, or an, I'm sorry, an official diagnosis of something else yes. just to get the proper treatment for Lyme to get the IVIG because the insurance yes. companies won't cover it for Lyme disease. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. Okay. So I remember getting four months of different tests. I still got scars and all these What, skin what tests tags. were they? What did you, would you recall what they diagnosed you with? Because a lot of people um, generally autoimmunity. I can't sadly remember that. I can hopefully try to find it out. Probably my dad will have it, but I still have four scars along my legs of like pieces of like holes of skin they took out. I remember going through four months of tests, still not even knowing what I got diagnosed with, but suddenly I had the diagnosis to get my IVIG. So wait, you had, you had chunks of skin ripped off your leg to get you a diagnosis on paper that wasn't necessary just to justify your treatment for Lyme disease, which you knew you had and you were ultimately trying to treat. So you were basically scarred for the purposes of getting proper treatment. Yep. And on top of that, just to make very clear, I come from a very privileged family. So what always hit me on top of that is what the heck is happening to everyone else? If I'm coming from this much privilege and this is what we're having to go through, it was ter- it, it with now I can look back and be like, I was an empath. So that's why that weighed on me a lot. But it was really stressful to me. So I'm like, if we're having to go through this many blockades, I couldn't even talk to my friends that we had to lie about getting this IVIG. And it got to a point that when I started my podcast, my dad was actually scared for me to talk about that openly. And I was like, no, I don't care. Like, I am so sick of this because I need them to know that I'm this privileged and this is how hard it was. And I was like, we need to, there has to be more than the politics. This is not okay. Because so many people would not be here. And the fact that you have some doctors that are wanting to help you and their hands are tied until you they, they have to go through the this whole yeah. 
ridiculous set of tests just to get you the treatment. And with Lyme disease, you yeah. never know what's going to work, right? So IVIG may help me, but it may not help you. So this isn't a yep. guaranteed slam dunk either, correct? Exactly. And it helped. And for instance, I ended up getting IVIG for, I think it was about 14 months. And it was, I would have, I was living in the city and I would, it was really hard. I also, at this point I'd quit skiing. I'd lost my entire everything, my, my identity. I completely lost it. I was now living in New York City and I was just trying to figure out what the heck is happening at this age. My parents at the time didn't fully understand how bad these illnesses were. So they were still quite bitter about the lack, the loss of skiing. Um, so it very much was on my own. And I got pushed to do, I was suddenly never had a job, very ill, having to go to Connecticut. And I was put in very uncomfortable situations to just survive. Um, and it was really hard because I also looked so healthy. Everyone knew that I was from somewhat of a privileged family, that I had no support, friends, family, nothing. I also didn't help myself there because my ego from skiing was too big that I like put out on Instagram that I was doing so well. When in reality, the reason my photos were so good was I was sitting at home doing nothing and I could set up a little selfie camera and like make it look perfect and make it look like this whole thing. And that was my own ego thing. But it obviously didn't help with getting any sort of support. And but, but social media is a place where everybody puts on the best version of themselves, right? So you're yep. not alone in that. Everybody does and that. Especially when and it first came out. It's hopefully changing now. But but my point is to that that people shouldn't judge you based on how you're looking because even if you look that great every single day, that's why we have the term invisible illness, which right. So many yep. people in the launch community always talk about the invisible illness stigma. You look great, you can't be sick. So yep. before, but I do want to ask you, so you're in New York City, you're getting IVIG. It sounds like you did it for a few months and it helped a little bit. And then it sounds yep. like you pivoted over to Connecticut to see another doctor. Is that what happened? So the the so Connecticut, what, the IVIG was in Connecticut. So I'd be getting the train two hours. Basically, I would be able to work successfully for two weeks in the middle of the month. But when I got the IVIG, it put me bedridden for a week. I was able to somewhat work two weeks. And then that last week was just all the symptoms came back. And it was just this like constant up and down, up and down, up and down. And it was really hard for me to um, commit to anything because I, again, was an athlete. I knew to show up. I knew what it looked like if you didn't show up. And so I just started very much backing away from most things because I mentally and emotionally couldn't handle not showing up, let alone not showing up and not being my best self. Let me ask you a question, George, about that, because I know in my personal experience, and Rich can speak to this, when we first started this podcast just two and a half, three years ago, I missed many podcast episodes. I was so, so sick at the time. Mm -hmm. And the emotional impact I let that have on me I mm -hmm. believe it made me even sicker because I knew I was letting Rich down. I knew I was letting the guests down. And I think a lot of the anticipation contributed to my worsening of symptoms, right? So I was almost like my own worst advocate because I, mm -hmm. I just feel like, yes, I wasn't well, but then the way I responded to it emotionally made me feel worse. And I'm not saying it's in my head. I'm not saying I was completely crazy, but my emotional response worsened the symptoms, right? Do you yes. feel what happens to you as well? Because I think I had to have that realization to really focus on my own thoughts to curtail or curb a worsening of symptoms when I have symptom flare, if that makes sense. And I feel like you're describing that very well. And I think we're on the same page here with, with, with these concepts. That makes a lot of sense to me. And honestly, perfect timing because I, there's many times I've looked back at the IVIG and I believe 
for me at least, like the second I felt good, I felt like I had to do everything, take over the world. And then that obviously wasn't a great balance. So then I would run myself out. But I didn't, if I felt good, I would show up for my friends as much as I could, as much as like everything. I would try to do everything. And then I would be gone for two weeks and completely MIA, completely ruined. And then that would ruin me 10 times more because it's not showing up. And so I believe now with years of education and more understanding about my human self and just et cetera, if I probably did the IVIG treatment now, knowing my boundaries, knowing all of that, it probably could have worked for me. But I just, I didn't know how to rest because yeah, I'd be laying in bed doing nothing, but that didn't mean my head and my emotions were not doing it. Like they weren't resting. So I was laying there being like, one, I've let my parents down on my skiing. Two, I'm not being a good friend. I can barely take my dog out to go to the bathroom. I can barely take myself to the bathroom. Like I am an 18 year old girl peeing myself in bed. Like, how is this okay? And like, everyone's off at college. Everyone's doing this. I had a scholarship. I I had no break in my head. So yeah, I was laying in bed doing nothing, but I wasn't resting. And And that's very clear. I learned that difference of you can be in bed trying to rest, but you were not resting and you were not healing. And it, it, it is extremely different like extremely different. And it's, it, uh, it's still, I have to remind myself day to day about that again. Amen to that, Georgia. I can tell you, I, I fully understand what you're saying. I mean, when I was bed bound, I was in a constant state of fight or flight and I was in a constant state of anxiety and fear and panic and disappointment and you name it, all the emotions that were contributing to worsening symptoms. And I've had to learn to even now have grace on myself and to when I need to rest, rest and have a calm mind and really get the true rest, both physical and mental. And without that, it's really difficult to heal from Lyme disease. I mean, that's something you're describing so brilliantly. And I never really thought about it as deeply until you're the way you're describing it now. So thank you for just using your, your, you know, beautiful way of describing things to, to describe this scenario again, because I don't think we think about this enough that yes, we are sick. But if we can focus on how we respond to that, we can make things a little bit better and maybe not worsening, maybe not make our journey as bad as it needs to be. Right. And and I know it's a hard thing to reflect on, but I really strongly believe that, Georgia. And I think one more tag onto that, and this is everyone takes it in their own manner. But for me, obviously, coming from being an athlete, like I really succeed on having a purpose and doing well at whatever the heck I'm doing. So it got to a point that, and thank gosh for my therapist for this. And I highly recommend everyone with one get a therapist and have that therapist <laughs> always. Um, but very much I I ended up like I had I needed to work to be able to rest in bed because I couldn't just lay in bed for hours on end and be I wouldn't rest. So I found a job that yeah, I didn't really care about, but I cared enough to get up and show up because that's who I am. If I've said yes to something, I want to do that. So I honestly, I got a lower job that probably didn't hit any of my qualifications, but it was something that I had to show up. I only had to show up for three hours and then I could come back and I could feel okay to rest the rest of the day. And so it's not, it, it's okay if you're resting, is it just fully in your bed? Because sometimes you have to make compromises to mentally be able to rest. And that was a big issue for me because I was like, how can I be saying to people 
that I'm this ill and that I'm out working or I'm out doing something social, that's not going to look good. That's not going to make sense. I already look healthy. So I, that also came with age, but it's very much it. I want everyone to know listening. It's okay if you have a really bad moment or day or week and then gosh forbid two minutes later you happen to feel slightly better to be able to show up show up and if that's going to help you be able to come back and rest a little bit later do that because I questioned myself so much I was like oh I'm suddenly feeling good should I see my friends should I do something And I was like too scared at points because I was like then if I do get really ill they're not going to get it so give your grace to know you know yourself enough at this point if you want to do something social so you can come back and rest after you do that because you know yourself enough and trust your gut. Yeah, this is so powerful. I mean, I'm telling you, I am, I am truly, as you're speaking, Georgia, I'm, I'm seeing and reliving my past experiences of things that I did wrong. And now things that I've, I've been able to improve that have helped me to yeah. heal. And you're describing them so brilliantly that I've never really been able to reflect on this way. So thank you. But I do want to hear now, you know, what's going on next. Cause the IVIG helped you a little bit, but you had a lot of other things going on. It didn't help you in the way you needed it to. So what came next after IVIG? Um, after IVIG, I got really sick of the ups and downs cause I was getting a lot of amazing job offers and things I had to fully commit to. And I just knew with the IVIG process of the sort of up and down two week, four week roller coaster, it, I would not be able to show up. So I very much got online and I was like, there's got to be another way. And I was sick of modern medicine at this point. I was taking antibiotics to the point. I was like, this just isn't working for me. I can't keep anything down. It's just not working for me. I can't take 42 pills a day. I can barely eat. So like, what? And so I got online and I found this place in West Palm Beach called Hippocrates. Um, it has changed a bit now. I'm not sure where it's at now. But at the time, it was really great for um, Lyme disease. I went, I, had, I literally took it to my parents. I begged them and basically fast, fasten it up. Like they make go raw vegan very like you go live there for a while and for me and there's a lot of cancer patients there who are kind of too far gone but they're trying to work like basically we put wheatgrass up our bums to cleanse ourselves we went the extreme of the extremes I went raw vegan I also was just turned 19 at this point I barely went to high school because I was skiing so much so I was a very open mind so I was like oh my gosh this is the only way to get through life and it did it it changed my life going raw vegan for me did reset everything and it was amazing and I finally did make some growth I was getting a lot of um vitamin c uh ivs and uh doing a lot of um hyperbolic chambers hyperbaric oxygen right yep thank you I was doing a lot of that sort of stuff and it was a lot of wheatgrass, all the juices, all of that, and that completely changed my life. That being said, I then had to move back into reality at 19 years old into New York City and try to live the raw vegan lifestyle and also work and also continue getting better. And that kind of obviously blew. It, it did well for a little while, but kind of blew up in my face because it just wasn't feasible, realistic any of that. Um, there still was all the family stuff. Fast forward, I moved to Miami because I at least knew at that point I needed sun and I needed to get away from all the toxicity toxicity of the people around me. Because at that point, I started realizing to myself, I know better than these people around me. I know I'm fighting something. 
Georgia, but I'm sorry to interrupt again, but obviously you had toxic people around you, right? But I'm I'm just thinking New York City is a very toxic environment, both from a heavy metal standpoint, from a pollution standpoint, from a mold standpoint, because of, you know, the the nature of of New York. So do you think that not only were you being exposed to toxicity in your relationships, but also real toxins in your environment that you were living, possibly mold, possibly heavy metals, and these things were weakening your immune system and not allowing you to, to build upon the gains you made on all of your previous treatments it sounds like yes absolutely absolutely i also think an element that was still again with my athletic side the ego is i completely ditched the skiing community and i was living a cool in quotation marks life in new york city on instagram and it was really hard for my ego to be like it's not as cool as it is and it kind of sucks and it's actually really crap. And um, mm. <laughs> so but then you move to I, Florida, which is cool because it's really awesome, you know, really nice weather down there. You're gonna get well, some vitamin yeah. D, right? At this point, I kind of wanted to move back to Australia because I was like, everything's too toxic here, I'm done. But I couldn't do that because obviously Lyme disease is not acknowledged in Australia. So I was like, okay, the Amer- I was like, the closest to that is maybe Miami Beach on the East Coast. So I moved to Miami Beach, do two years there and I, at this point, had learned enough. I'd completely separated from my entire family. Like, at this point, I was very much just Georgia by herself. No one got what was happening. I was so tired of explaining it. I just, I was like, I need to go and just create a new world. And I went to Miami Beach and met this amazing therapist there. And it was great because there was sun. And it was a more low-key life. And I knew enough about being a raw vegan, doing yoga. That's when I got my yoga certificate. I found a job that sort of worked for me. And I found things that worked enough. And I came into a new place that I made very clear to the people around me. I have a health issue. So when I say I'm not showing up, it's not personal. It's my thing. It's not personal. Like, trust me on that. And so that, that was a big step for me. It also was really tough because I also was 20 years old, still very ill, had literally no savings and trying to survive in Miami Beach by myself whilst trying to pay for any Lyme doctor I could find. But you're breaking that people pleaser mentality and you're setting boundaries, which is important when healing from Lyme disease. You're setting boundaries and saying, look, it's not personal. I'm sorry if I can't make it, but I have health issues, right? And communicating that is freaking hard as as Lyme patients. It's really hard to verbalize. But it's very freeing when you can do that as yes. well. And I know it. And I think you know it, obviously, George. It's freeing when you come out there and just say, you know what? I'm not having a good day. Sorry. I'm not going to do that today. It, you, yep. It's such a burden off your mind and off your, you know, the physical tension, the emotional tension that you have because you're just communicating better. But, you know, in that regard, I mean, look, you, you left the toxic, the toxic people around you. You left the toxic you know, environment. But there's a third, I think, aspect to the toxicity. So not in addition to the buildings, the mold, the heavy metals, the pollution, then all the toxic relations with New York City. What about the toxicity of social media? Because you mentioned you were like really addicted to Instagram and, you know, trying to show off, hey, look, I look so good. You know, let me, let me spend three hours getting myself ready for a, you know, a photo shoot for Instagram. Yep. Talk about the dark side of social media and how that impacted your healing journey. Oh my goodness. Um, it was extremely hard. I obviously had left Australia my entire, I think also to make very clear with my Lyme brain, I, it sounds so dumb, but I had not put together in my mind that like social media is very social and goes everywhere. <laughs> It sounds, but like, I really thought my high, I was just proving it to my high school friends. 
that it sounds so, and like at this point I had like 17k people following me and like I genuinely still was just posting to prove to my high school group like from the people that said how many like, people were in your graduating class Georgia how, was it over 17,000 people it was 35 people <laughs> if that if that like that's what I find so funny and I went so ham and I actually was very successful at Instagram because it was so catered to like no I'm doing cool I'm doing great when I was horrible <laughs> it's hysterical to me um and I was really good at doing it and I happened to be like the Australian who's like it was a good bout like think of social media I was pretty textbook to what would get like acknowledged and so I used it but it was the most toxic thing I probably could have done in my entire healing journey because I, how are my family in Australia meant to understand what my parents are trying to say when I'm posting like me being this top model or like in these top places and how that, that doesn't make sense. And I do not, now looking back, I don't expect them to try and make sense of that. But I remember in myself the time I'm like, I'd be proud that I'm this sick and can do that. And it's like, no, they didn't see the sickness. They're like, this girl's living in America, doing her Miami life. Like, of course no one would relate. It was toxic as heck. And then there'd be times I'd try to reach out and try to get some sort of sympathy, whether it was friends or employees or anything. And it was like, girl, you've posted that on Instagram. I'm like, okay, but that was four weeks ago. <laughs> like I'm sitting in bed now melting. That was full. How, did, how does everyone believe this is happening right now? But this so is another really good I, I topic. Reckon, I'm sorry to interrupt again, Georgia. This is a really good topic, right? Because yeah. there's several facets this I want to discuss with you. The first one is yes. you mentioned earlier, and you know, the, the stereotypical saying in the Lyme community, and you said it much better, is Lyme is not a Lyme healing is not linear, meaning it's an up and down yeah. journey, right? So just because you felt great four weeks ago doesn't mean you're not completely sick today and, and stuck at home because you need to you need to recover and you're having a flare, right? That that's the first thing that people don't really understand about chronic I also disease. think it can happen in the same day, it can also happen in the same hour, and it can happen in the same 10 minutes. Absolutely. Amen to that. And too, that's right? what people don't get to understand is that quick switch back or quick switch there. It can happen like that and like that. And you know, on that note though, and so it's another not a thing choice. is and right, you have no control over it. But another yeah. thing I think we do as patients sometimes is really damaging to our emotions and to our psyche is many of us will say, I had a great week. I am fully healed. And they go out there on social media and they say, I'm healed. I beat Lyme disease. I'm in remission. Oh. And then a week later, they're, oh my God, I can't get out of bed. I'm dying. I'm so sick. I, I don't know what's going on. And this cycle occurs, Georgia, where this happens literally cyclical. And you can predict it with these people on social media. And yeah. it's like, oh, they're healed this week. Next week, they're going to be in bed. You know, and it's, it's, it's really sad. But we have to realize that when we're healing, we're going to have, as we can, as we keep climbing that ladder, we're going to have weeks where we feel symptom free. And then we're going to have maybe yeah. a couple of days where we feel like crap. And that's going to keep happening until we finally reach, you know, our ultimate goal of, of true health. Right. But I think it's damaging to our psyche to think when we have a good week that we're cured or in re or fully healed and not going to have a relapse what are your thoughts on that and, and that the impact that has on on the individual who is doing this and, and believing they're they're you know they're cured or healed in the moment um i think i have a couple i think the biggest the quick the first thing i want to state on that is first of all whether you're sick or not you're gonna have good and bad days you're gonna have good and bad moments it, it, happiness is a choice and I think reminding yourself of that is so key because 
I'll like get very far with my lime and then I just have a bad day in another way, like a very petty thing. And because of my lime, sometimes I'll be, I'll, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say petty. It, it is a very real thing happening that has affected me, made me sad and maybe not have such a great day. And it is just because I'm feeling healthy. I can still have a bad day because that is life. So I think putting that right there is a big thing of either way, things are going to go up and down. That's just how it is. Cause you don't know the good unless you have the bad. So I think that is the biggest thing. And then I think when it comes to the line is, um, can you just re-ask the last question again slightly? My yeah, brain went a little. No, you're good. I mean, well, first of all, happiness is a choice. I couldn't agree more, right? It's all about how we approach things. And I think we can, we can make painful situations a little less painful if we approach them differently. Um, and, and, and beyond that, you know, one of our, one of our favorite guests made the quote, you know, don't wait until you're healed to live your life, right? And mm -hmm. I think it's really powerful too. You don't have to be in remission or cured to live your life. You can be healing and still live your life and still be happy. And I think that's something that I'm mm -hmm. saying I make often and a lot of people mom can make often either I'm sick and I and I can't function and I don't have a life or I'm cured or healed and in remission. But you can live your life while healing and you can be happy while healing. And I think that's the that's the thing we need to really clarify for this yes. community. And, and, and again, for myself and I think for you, because it was so hard for us to realize that. But my question is, and it's sort of in line with what I just said, when people have that I'm healed. And then they have a oh, really yes. bad couple of days and then they have, I'm healed. And you can truly see the emotional distraught on these people's faces when they come and say, I'm sick again. Right. I yeah. feel like that's something that you have to, as a patient address and almost manage. So you're not having an emotional letdown, which is going to contribute to worsening symptoms. Right. Okay. Yes. So I have a very, and it's actually a very recent story to this. Um, and I, the thing is, is like, I don't think there's ever healed. And it's not because it's like, you're going to be sick forever. Let me make that very clear. It is the fact that this is a part of your story now, and you're always going to keep learning from it in different manners. Whether it's just a memory of some level or a trauma of some level or whatever it is, or a relationship, it is not ever going, maybe it'll be healed, but you're not going to stop growing from it because it is a part of your story. And so I think the biggest, and honestly, me, my friends, my therapist, we all joke about this because basically I'll be like, oh, I'm finally better. And literally the next day or an hour later, it is, I'm in hospital. It is so on point to the fact that I say, oh, I'm better. And then it all hits the fan. So <laughs> I have made it a very trained point to never say now, like it's done, I'm better. And the biggest reminder of that, and that literally just hit in the past two weeks, was we actually did have to delay this recording because I'd made this entire time with COVID without getting COVID. And that was my, I felt it was my biggest fear was to get COVID. And I literally moved to Vermont to hide out, be rid of anything. Basically, I had also booked this podcast probably four months ago, five months ago. I was so I'm not going to book it until I can show up. I'd been told I hit remission on August 3rd. So I was like, I'm going to book it right near there. And so there's me again, trying to like make things black and white. Nothing is black and white. And yes. then of course, literally two days before this podcast, I get COVID and I end up having probably the worst post-traumatic stress attack of my life because I got COVID and 
I recently have helped, have felt the healthiest in my life I have ever felt and got this brain clarity. That's like, Oh my goodness. Like this is incredible. And I never want to lose that. And then suddenly I get this hundred, it all hits so quickly. This is 103 degree fever. I'm kind of out of it. Then I get paralyzed to get on my body and I get all my, my, it felt like my Lyme symptoms just came back within 30 minutes. And the two years that I'd hidden from the world, done nothing was just gone. And I'd, I'd completely gone back to step one and I couldn't, I, it was terrifying. And then the fact that I knew at that point I hadn't kept down enough um, water and I hadn't eaten enough that I knew I had to go to the hospital. And I was too scared to go to the hospital because I was in such an anxiety attack that gosh forbid I would end up in the psych ward because I said one thing wrong because of my trauma from when I came to hospitals before. And then this beautiful partner that I have now, he'd never seen that side of me with Lyme. So he's like asking me, what can I do? What can I do? I'm laying there. I can think everything, but I couldn't speak. I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. And I'm just like, call Emma, who's luckily my best friend who saw some of the worst. And he's like, what can she do? Anyways, fast forward to what I'm saying is I don't, there's just take away, like I'm healed, I'm better. Because the thing is, is look, you've got Lyme. It's in your story and it's from what we're still learning the information about it. And yeah, technically I hit remission in two weeks and it was terrifying to go through this thing with COVID and oh my gosh, did I feel laying on that floor like, I had this tick cap, like everything's booked and it's all going to blow up in my face and everything's going to ruin again. No, because I've now done five years with Lyme. It's never going to go back to as bad as it was. So no matter what, I can always say as things get bad, I can always be like, I have dealt with worse, with less understanding, less sympathy, less support. I have done and survived through way worse. And I think that's the biggest thing with Lyme is, I still remember when the reason, like coming back to when I was living in Miami, the reason I created my podcast was I'd lost my family, friends. So I was like, and I also couldn't read medical journals. I couldn't read. <laughs> I couldn't like watch things. And I remember there was one documentary out, but I tried to watch it. It was too triggering to physically watch it. So I was like, I just literally need to create a podcast that is real, raw, and relatable because I just want to hear people say, this sucks. And like, I'm in a bad mood and this sucks. I'm still fighting. I'm still positive, but this sucks. And, I'm, and I wanted to hear that I'm not crazy, that you're also hitting your head into a wall sometimes. And if you're not hitting your head into a wall, you're doing other things that somewhat relate to me, that I'm not a bad person. I just wanted to hear and lay in bed and be like, okay, I'm not a bad person, so I can keep going. So to, I guess, long, long, long answer your question, nothing is black and white and you're not ever going to be like, oh, we're good from here and everything's going to be up, 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 up. That's just not life. And that's why life is so great is it's interesting up and down. And Lyme taught me that at a very young age, like you can learn to appreciate like, yo, I can get up and go to the toilet. I don't have to pee myself right now. That's kind of cool. Also, I can hike a mountain. That's kind of cool. Also, I can relate to a person who I've never spoken to or have anything in common. And I can be like, yo, I know you're fine awesome sorry yeah. that's my long answer no i i, I mean <laughs> i get passionate no and this is great i mean 
Well, I'm still I'm still thinking about what you said probably a few minutes ago when you said <laughs> you're not gonna no, this is it's just it's so powerful. You're not gonna stop growing from the experience, right? So I think that's true that we're even once you feel good, you're gonna continue to learn and grow from the experience. And by coming on this podcast, networking with others, learning ways to improve your, your health in general, and you're gonna just keep growing throughout your life and you're gonna have ups and downs, and it's never gonna be I am fully cured. And I think you explained that very brilliantly. So thank you for that. And I just want to share with our listeners though, Georgia, that this was seven days ago. This was exactly yeah. one week ago <laughs> that you had COVID and we had to postpone this podcast. And you had to go to the hospital and you were so sick. And seven days later, look at you today. I mean, yeah. you are, I, I can't even, I can't even explain just how well you look. And I know it's an invisible illness and I'm sorry to be judging you based yeah, on your appearance, fine. but you look amazing and you're, you're just doing amazing on this podcast. So, and the fact that you get that PTSD, I just want our listeners to have a little bit of peace about just because you've made a lot of progress doesn't mean one setback is going to destroy yeah. you. And that's what you just described so brilliantly. So thank you for that. But let's go back to Florida. So you're in Florida. You talked about you found a really good therapist. What else happened in Florida? And then what happened next? Oh, sorry, my dog's barking. My support dog. Uh, well, actually, speaking of my dog speaking up, she was like, why haven't you spoken about me? Um, it's, it's her time to join the interview now. She wants to join because we're told, this is her part of the story, right, Georgia? So what kind, um, of dog, what kind of dog is she? So I, she's a rat terrier chihuahua, and that was actually pretty perfect timing. Um, I, when I was in Miami, I very much, I started the podcast, definitely got a community, but a big game change, and this definitely is to each their own, but I'd always grown up with a dog. And especially again, to with the suck it up community, um, I very much, um, one second. Feel good. Um, I hadn't, Lily. She's a Lily is officially a part of this podcast now, George. I'm, I'm okay, actually sweet. happy this happened because now she's an okay. official part of this podcast. So thank you. That Love was perfect that. timing. She very much, she was, before human, she was one of the first ones to save my life because basically, I guess with the suck it up culture, I found it very hard to, I was very, I, I was, I had no desire for life anymore because that one, I didn't know who I, what? You were alone in Florida, right? You went yeah, there I by yourself, very, you were very alone. Much alone. I'm a very social person. So I'd made friends where they deep, real friends who knew what was happening. Absolutely not. Um, but, and I'm also very open. So they knew about it, but I still basically Lily, my dog, I got her and she was my purpose to not give in. Um, I just needed something. I needed literally anything. Cause for me, I didn't know my valley, so I thought I was a crap person. Um, my family had left me in my mind. I actually, looking back, think I isolated myself. But um, there were just so many things, and Lily came in. She was a big support. And then because of Lily, I actually learned how to love <laughs> again and receive love in a way that I didn't have to owe her anything but just feeding her and taking her out. And that was a way for me to relearn love. And I think there is the aspect of being the athlete in there um, because I had never received love that was just unconditional. Unconditional love was a concept that I had never witnessed, um, at least felt, I guess. And so Lily taught me that. And from there, I was able to find a therapist. And I have been with this therapist now for straight five years. I... It was probably the biggest game changer in my recovery because I had someone who was just on my side no matter what. And 
I will say um, I ended up like as privileged as I am. And this, this does people find this a little tricky, but I had to do some sex work because I genuinely didn't know what else to do. I did online sex work because I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't afford anything. And I'm given, it was the most logical, safest thing for me to get money when I was completely alone at the age of 20 years old. And if I'm having to do that where I'm from, like I can't, again, as I say on repeat, what the heck is happening with everyone else who doesn't have anything? Because I still, I was getting paid to model at the time and I still had to do the side hustle. So it, it's, to me, it was just shocking, but it gave me this like understanding strength. Then I was doing the podcast and being like, okay, I am valid. So I was like, no, I'm taking this. And then I had my therapist. I'm taking this to my parents. I'm taking this and I'm going to fight for these relationships. I'm not letting this thing take anything more from me. There was definitely the switch of kind of turning 22, 23. That was like, hang on. No, no, this is, I'm not letting this take anything more. And COVID happened around then. And I knew enough. I wasn't speaking to my mom, barely speaking to my dad, but I sucked it up and moved into one of their places and I've gone to therapy with both of them with my sister now as well and I've taken the time to understand their side as well and I think that's a big thing a lot of um when you're in it deep especially when you're new in it deep it's really at least for me it was really hard to have empathy for my caregivers because I'd be like as I said, it started this podcast is like, why don't you see me? How do you not see me? Um, and so I think the, how do I word this? Like, I just got a little sidetracked there. Um, but the speaking to the therapist, the empathy, little, if anyone. Yeah, can and, 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 and being able to see it from the viewpoint of your oh, family yes, members, right? I think a really key part of it that, finally switched after coming to Vermont also obviously I wasn't in toxic cities anymore so that so helped. you left Florida and went to Vermont right when COVID hit within pretty much 48 hours I just knew how I think because of my experience with Lyme I knew somehow in my gut COVID was going to be very bad so I remember it was announced March 17th and I basically packed up and drove after living in Miami Beach for two and a half years, still at six months on my rent. I packed up everything and left within two days and drove to Vermont pretty much. George, I just want to back up real quick before we get to the Vermont. In yeah. Florida, were you seeing any other Lyme doctors and were you doing anything to treat Lyme beyond the therapy and work, you know, self-work that you were doing? Uh, I saw one doctor in Orlando once or twice um and it just wasn't I couldn't there was no way I was going to be able to support myself with that doctor get up there there was no way I could work there was just no way to do the treatment so you were just trying um, to survive and you weren't really treating yeah you were no, just trying I to was, live your life and I was survive trying and to do somewhat of juicing yoga all holistic I was just keeping it on the mellow and because I was strong enough not that's not a good word I was egotistical enough to ignore my symptoms that Lily, um, that I was able to get through it, but it was it was hell. 
So two years of hell in Florida. Thank God for Lily, who is now introducing herself again. So yes. thank God for Lily in Florida and thank God for your therapist to help you get through it. And to, you know, it's important to know that before this, you had many, many failed therapists. You know, we yes. just, I know some of your, your pre-interview questionnaire, yes. some of which you actually made you worse and made your relationships yes. worse. So it's important to note that you're, if you haven't gone to therapy, the first therapist you go to is not going to be some savior. You sometimes you have to go through a few to find a good one, but yes. it's worth it. And don't give up if you can't find a good therapist. I know that's that's yes. your experience as well. Yes, so, I went through many, many, many different tries and it made me lose a lot of hope. And it was really, really hard resharing my story because I barely understood my story at the time. Um, so it was really traumatizing being able to be that open and then just being ruined again. And like the reason I was going to therapy was I was so ruined by people not listening to me. So it was quite traumatizing, but so well worth it. And I was quite lucky. I mean, it took a couple of times, but I was quite lucky, um, I guess, in the outcome of it. But I think reminding yourself that it's really hard to understand unless you've been through it. It's, it's, it's really confusing. And I tell myself that all the, all the time. All right. So now it's it's, March, 2020 COVID hits. You have the the forethought to say, I'm going back to Vermont. I'm going to be be with my family. Right. You moved to Vermont. Oh no, you're by yourself. Yeah. It was just that I knew the house was open. Okay. So this is a family house. Yeah. Okay. So you go to the family house in Vermont and you get, you get out of Florida and now you're, you're in Vermont, COVID hits, and I'm sure that brings an added level of stress. What are you doing? Are you treating Lyme? You know, what's your life like at this point? And how does it change compared to how you were living in Florida? So at this point, I'm now living in my mother's house. So I very much had to somewhat create a reconnection with her. Same as my father. Um, they were, I did take a pit stop in Virginia where my father was for about a month. And then I came up to Vermont because I had more of a base here. And basically, I could just see that COVID was going to be a mess for a long time. So I actually chose back specifically to come back to Vermont, where a lot of the trauma happened in this house, that I was like, honestly, may as well take this time to try and reflect. At this point, I'd been pretty successful yoga instructor. So I was really looking inner and trying to evolve. Um, So I came back to Vermont. And it was horrible. When I first came back and walked back into this house, I saw myself where I beat myself up. I saw the head holes I put in the thing that had been covered up. It was really hard. And I actually, I numbed myself for a while. Um, and then it got quite a bit worse because the allergies heightened and I'd just been, I was in a new area that triggered my Lyme and then just the stress. And I luckily, again, was so scared I mean, since I had to retire from skiing, I couldn't commit to it. And then New York, I couldn't commit to my jobs there. I was too scared to commit to anything. So every job I took was something a bit lower than me. So if I lost it or couldn't show up, it wasn't something that hurt my kind of sense of self, I guess. And I was a nanny, which that being said, like, don't take anything away. That is keeping kids alive. And I love it so much, but it probably wouldn't have been my path. Um, but I nannied and then I basically was my mom was stuck in Australia because of heightened of COVID. I had absolutely no family here, barely had a base here. I had luckily been open enough to communicate to the few people around me that I somewhat have Lyme disease and they'd seen my online presence. So they knew it from there. Um, but basically I started feeling really ill really ill very suddenly and then I was like oh it's got to be Lauren 
kept ignoring it, kept ignoring it. I did my yoga. I did all my holistic things that had kind of kept it maintainable enough. And then there's one day that I just fully collapsed. And apparently I'd been internally bleeding from a burst ovary cyst for seven days. And because of my trauma from Lyme disease, going to hospitals, I just sat there and bled for seven days in so much pain. And I, I didn't even, it didn't cross my mind to go to the hospital because I was like, this is Lyme. It's probably another symptom that I don't know about yet. And if I go to the hospital, I'm going to be put in a psych ward. And I am now 24, 23. So I'll be locked up in the state. Like I will not be able to get signed out. So I sat there and just dealt with it. And then I guess I blacked out and this person who barely knew me had to make the call to get me rushed to the hospital. But still going into the hospital, I didn't feel comfortable to say like, I couldn't speak because I went into the hospital. There's too much light. There's too much anything, too much everything. Everyone's asking me questions. Everyone's asking my history. And I'm like, I can't. So I laid there with my eyes closed. And I remember I literally went there. The way they took me out was I was in undies and a t-shirt because anything that touched my body was too much. It was too much like on my skin, too much like what's the sensations or and so I got to the hospital and I'm laying there with my eyes closed and I just laid there and I was like chronic neurological Lyme disease, chronic neurological Lyme disease. And I just repeated it nonstop because I was like some nurse or some doctor has got to freaking get this. And finally a nurse got it. She got everyone out of the room, turned off the lights, got me something to kind of cover my eyes a little bit, like got me those kind of fake glasses that like dim it. And I was like, and I was able to do my breathing techniques, do what I'd learned to manage it all out. And I was like, I was able to say to her, look, this is what's happening. And until that moment, like I would have probably ended up in the psych ward if I didn't have the history of ending up the psych ward when I was 18 and luckily still, sorry, 17. And luckily having my parents sign me out. But I just, I, I was so scared to even open my eyes or say anything about neurological Lyme disease. Second that happened, they found I was internally bleeding instantly rushed to hospital but I will say on top of that because of the history of my health none of my family believed that I was literally about to die from internal bleed they thought it was just a, another thing at first so um to quickly finish that off is I was in Vermont and I lost my father and sister through that they just didn't want to deal with it they were like this is too much I'm sorry. Um, and so I had a very dark couple months and I found luckily from the family I was nannying with because I'd been so honest about my line, because I'd showed up and said when I couldn't, it wouldn't be because I was hungover. It wouldn't be. And if it was because I was hungover, I'd be honest. But if I don't show up, it's normally because of Lyme. And if not, I'll be very honest why I'm not showing up. And they found a Lyme literate doctor in Woodstock, Vermont called Joan Randall. She's the best person ever. And she does the magnetic treatments. After that surgery, the reason I was also so scared going into that surgery was I was like, this is going to send my Lyme off charts. Like I'm going to be screwed again. And I remember going into Joan Randall and I couldn't, I was so sick of everyone, but I luckily had a somewhat community around me that cared about me at the time that they got me there. And I literally remember, I, I don't, but I've been told I sat in that that doctor's thing, glasses on, bucket hat on. And she asked me one question and I literally couldn't answer a question because I was like, I can't even try to explain 
what the heck is happening? I'm so tired. This is nine years in. I'm dead. Like I've given at that point, I had completely given up. It was the people around me that did get me through. She got me on the table. She was like, do you trust? She asked one question, saw me sort of trigger. And she was like, just get on the table. And I, and I was like, okay. And then she was like, this is going to hurt a lot. And she basically said, what do you use for pain? I was like, get me a towel to bite on. She brought me three different textures of towels. And that's when I knew and put them up to my mouth with my, with my eyes closed. And that's when I knew I was like, do anything you want. You've obviously had Lyme. You've obviously been through it. You've ignored the question answering. You've given me the texture option. You get it. I was like, take it away. I did the magnet treatment from there. Like, yes, I hurts. It was hell. But however long later, that was probably end of 20. No, that was 2021, start of 2021. And hitting August 2022, I'm pretty much about to hit remission because of Joan Randall, magnetic therapy, and just being very brutally honest about where I'm at with my line with the people around me. Georgia, tell us what this magnetic therapy is, because you said that she said, told you it was going to be painful and had you bite down on the towel. So I never thought about magnetic therapy as being something as painful, but I don't really fully understand it. So can you explain for our listeners and for me what it is and what, how it felt while receiving the treatment? Um, I definitely cannot do the scientific side of things because I will say I still don't really get my brain to do that quite yet. Um, but I can explain exactly how it felt. As we know, Lyme is a spiral bacteria. Um, she uses a lot of kinesiology um, to find, I guess, where it is in your body. For me, this- What does that mean, kinesiology, George? I'm sorry. Does, can you explain what that, how does kinesiology she use kinesiology is to find a lot it? of muscle testing. Um, and for instance, your body knows a lot of your, your body knows all your trauma. And let's say you had a trauma at two years old and something triggers that at 42 years old, it's actually going to feel exactly how it felt at two years old without you really knowing it. Um, so the body, it's quite, it's really hard to lie with your actual body. And so I still go into treatments with her and I'm like, how is this happening? But it's so spot on to what I'm feeling that I'm like, I don't even question it. Um, but basically I went in there. She literally had no history from me. It's muscle testing she, kinesiology. So it's, it's the muscle testing. Yes. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. And she put right before she put the magnets on me the first time, this is when I'm lying there, my sunglasses on close. I remember her picking up my feet, holding my heels, being like, I believe this really started about, 14 years old, like she, it, it hit the points that I literally had forgotten about my own story. And it was shocking to me. And she was like, and Barbicia and Bardinella are your biggest things. Like some of your biggest things. It was so shocking that sudden things she knew just from holding my feet and my energy that I was like, I trust you, you do you. And when you asked about the pain, it only really hurt the first time for me. Um, again, I think I was also in a state of like completely given up, but I just, anything that, I mean, I was so sensitive at the time that even like putting a hand on me, I probably would have reacted. So I felt though, when the magnet went on me and there were a couple, um, sort of the spiral, like unspiraling. So it was like, think of a wine opener and then you're unopening that, like it was the opposite. So it hurt, but after being in that much pain for so long, I honestly don't think it really hurt. And I don't think most Lyme patients would. I don't really want to say that big term, but I really don't. It's it's a hurt that is like, oh my God, thank gosh. 
it's working. It's a relief hurt, if that makes sense. It doesn't. And these, so these, these magnets are actually being put over certain parts of your body based on the muscle testing and the magnetic, I guess, frequency is allowing your body to clear up these congested spaces and also helping kill the line. Correct. Is that how it works? I, I just, I, I don't really I believe so. Okay. I, as again, I will say, I don't, she asked me multiple times, do you want to know the science behind it? I literally was so tired of all of the info. I was just like, I trust you. I'm seeing the change. You do you. Cause but that is how over it I was with all the facts that I was like, I actually feel the change, sorry, feel the change in what you're doing that I don't really care what you're doing. Just do it and let's go. But it's so ultimately sure it addressed the line. The links, but that no, shows no, how fine. I was just like, this feels like it's working. Go for it. So really, this is what helped you address the Lyme and co-infections in your body and bring yes. you to a place of where you are today. A little yes. over a year later, you're yes. almost in remission. You're almost completely symptom-free at this point, right? So yes. how amazing is that for this, this alternative medicine that many people don't even believe is real, but we've heard time and time again on this Tick Weekend podcast that it has helped people get their lives back, right? So it's just yep. another affirmation that we're hearing here about alternative medicine and magnetic therapy and muscle testing being spot on accurate about your history and your symptoms, right? So that's just yep. another another great story there for, for muscle testing. Now, I mean, give us an idea over the last year, you know, where are you at now with your health? I mean, are you have any symptoms left? Are you, you know, are you working? What are you doing now? And, and how do you feel? Um, I will say I'm, I'm doing really well. I finally have committed to a career and actually very ironically, it is in the ski industry. I am now coaching the kid that I used to be basically, but a key element for me is coaching is changing and I will not be doing the suck it up program. I'll be doing the, why are you doing this? Are you happy? Are you having fun? That's how you're going to succeed. So that is my biggest goal. I believe, and my therapist and I always say this is I went to the college of life and I've, I'm, I'm about to graduate pretty much. And I feel really stoked because for a long time, it sucked to be talking about what I was talking about. And just every time people ask, what are you up to? What are, oh, I'm fighting Lyme disease. Instead of being like, oh, I'm at college. No, I am. I've been fighting for my life and I am about to graduate and I am still alive. So I'm sorry. I think I've done a little, I've done some good things over the past couple. And it was a big thing to change in my head, but it was, no, I, I have done college of life and I have learned now how I see like my friends and they get really upset by the smallest of things or they don't appreciate the small things of being able to go to the bathroom. And being able to just breathe without pain, honestly, <laughs> or move. So for me, it's, I know I've been put on this, like, I just, I am now living day to day. I'm understanding that crap hits the walls, excuse my language. And that's okay, because that's honestly the beauty of life. And so it's learning to choose the moments of grace and appreciation learning to be able to say this sucks and still keep going because it's, and so now I'm a, yeah, I'm a coach for a bunch of kids and I am the only female coach on the, sorry, female coach on the East coast in the U S for freestyle skiing. 
Um, a big element of that is I really want people to be connected with their emotions because I think that makes you a stronger athlete in every sense. I strongly believe that my big passion is to continue sharing my Lyme story because I happen to have no filter. I've never had a filter before Lyme. And a lot of people seem to care sometimes what they say. I don't, as long as I help other people. So that is a major thing. It's just anyone who's willing to have the open conversation, be so vulnerable with them and just say, yo, it sucks. Keep going. I peed myself. I hit my head into walls. It was crazy. It sucked, but also it wasn't. It was strong. So it's just finding the balance and all the things and trying to basically get the message out of things are not black and white. And a lot of things are a choice. And it's okay that things suck and are good at the same time. You can be terrified and happy at the same time. It does not have to be either or. And it's okay to have both. Jordan, let me ask that you the last the question. question we ask. Let me ask you the last question that we ask okay. everyone on the Thick Bootcamp podcast. Uh, you said that you're, uh, you have a beautiful partner, somebody who has uh, been very understanding of you uh, and all of these challenges. So what if that partner came into this uh, room right after the podcast, into your room right after the podcast, and um, had a tick? What would you recommend that they do so that they would not find themselves on a difficult, chronic journey? First thing I would do is um, I would put tea tree oil on that tick right away so it loosens off. So you do not risk leaving that head in there. That is the first, I would always have real tea tree oil on you. That is the first thing I would say, because I will never try to get a tick out, even on my dogs now, without putting some sort of peppermint oil, tea tree oil, because that loosens them up right away. And you just lose the risk. You lose a little bit more of the risk of getting the head stuff in there. That is the first step. Second step, with that tick, put it in a Ziploc, send it right off to Igenix or whatever the different, I'm bad at brand names, but send it off to a Lyme literate lab so you can know right away. Take yourself to a doctor, say what happened, get the antibiotics if you can within those seven days. But even on top of that, get your juices in, like green juice, green juice, green juice, water, water, water already preemptively get on your health gosh forbid you missed that tick what i would recommend or gosh forbid you're still trying to get diagnosed with lyme trust your gut your gut knows your gut knows give yourself a break you're allowed to rest it doesn't make you lazy it doesn't make you a bad person rest give grace also give grace to anyone else around you who may have to now start helping you. But to that, like, let's say again to the partner is give yourself the grace because most likely you're not a bad person. Most likely you are probably sick and yes, it's not an excuse. And yes, you're going to do some crap things and you still have to own up to them because they will still hurt other people sometimes, but also give yourself the grace. I think that is the biggest thing is, if it is missed and you get diagnosed and you're having all these crazy ass symptoms that are not understood, give yourself the grace and trust yourself because you you do know. I my, I knew when I was freaking 16 when I had no knowledge, I just didn't know how to trust myself. Trust yourself first. Georgia, well, thank you so much for this very deep and thoughtful conversation. You are really a wonderful guest and uh, a wonderful podcast host. Uh, so we're really blessed to have uh, such a brilliant storyteller join us and make 
my job and Matt's job so easy on this podcast. So thank you for joining us. Sweet. Thank you so much for having me. Great conversations. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Georgia Wood. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Georgia, please visit her on our Instagram accounts at Zesty Yogi Geo and at Blooming with Lime Podcast. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.